This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's programme... The problem is that the world gets together and it sets up these international organisations and gives them a job. And then the international organisation starts doing its job. And then it starts just doing its job a bit too well or intrusively or inconveniently. I think perhaps we will be a bit more, at least in the beginning of the ending of the pandemic, be a bit more careful, maybe not shake hands, maybe not do the three kisses. The question now is how to deal with China or eventually Russia or other non-Western countries in the multilateral system. Hello and welcome to Inside Geneva. And in this episode, we've got a little bit of something new for the programme. We're not going to devote ourselves to just one topic today. Instead, we've got a panel of international Geneva experts to give us their take on a few different issues that we expect will occupy us in 2021. I'm joined today by journalist Gunilla von Hall of the Swedish daily Svenska Tagesblatt, Tom Miles, formerly chief correspondent for Reuters here in Geneva, and of course, our regular analyst, Daniel Warner. To start things off, take a listen to this. I join my fellow representatives in thanking the World Health Organization for its role in leading the global public health response to this pandemic. I am honored to announce that the United States will remain a member of the World Health Organization. Now that was Dr. Anthony Fauci, US Chief Medical Advisor, pretty much tearing up Donald Trump's policy on leaving the World Health Organization and praising the WHO for good measure. Just a couple of months ago, here on Inside Geneva, we were actually discussing what the Biden presidency might mean for Geneva. And we kind of predicted a rapprochement with the WHO. But let's just listen to a little bit more of what Dr. Fauci said. The Biden administration also intends to be fully engaged in advancing global health and building a healthier future for all people. The United States plans to work multilaterally to respond to and recover from the COVID-19 pandemic. So loud and proud, the U.S. is back. The word multilateral was even mentioned. Danny, since you are an American, I'm going to ask you first for your reaction. I, I think that the speech by Dr. Fauci is enormous. Uh, I think it's something that we should all, especially in Geneva, uh, welcome. Uh, on the other hand, I would worry that it's a little bit like low fruit hanging uh, in the sense that it's the WHO, World Health Organization, and Fauci is certainly an iconic figure around the world. But we haven't heard a statement really about the UN in general, such as the World Trade Organization, the Human Rights Council. Uh, and that would be more reassuring, but it's certainly a very positive start. Gunilla, I'm going to ask you, because you, like me, were actually listening when Dr. Fauci came on. Let's not forget, that was 10 o'clock in the morning, Geneva time. So it was four in the morning, DC time. And what I noticed, um, maybe you noticed it too, Gunilla, Anthony Fauci had a huge smile on his face when he made those remarks. 
Yes, he was clearly pleased. And it was a dramatic, dramatic shift to what we have heard the last years from Trump. Uh, it was it was really impressive, actually, and, and a very good signal. And Biden hasn't even been president for 24 hours. Uh, for WHO, of course, they're jubilant. This was a good sign. It's much needed credibility for WHO. What was remarkable, too, I think, is that the U.S. said that they're in, intending to join COVAX, which uh, helps with the sharing coronavirus vaccines with the poor countries. That was really good. Uh, for WHO, too, of course, this means full funding will come back or stay. They also said there will be staff support. Uh, so a lot of good signals. But at the same time, there was something there that he didn't elaborate on, and that's reforms. Because WHO need reforms. There are a lot of people who criticize and states, and even within WHO, they criticizes the organization. And there, Fauci didn't say anything. And there, something has to happen because uh, it's it's not going to be a honeymoon for a month. It's going to be maybe uh, a honey week. And then the U.S. being part of WHO again and wanting to fight against the pandemic, they also have to come up with some ideas. What about reform of WHO? How is it going to work better? How are we going to stop future pandemics? Tom, I'm going to ask you, because we've also been talking about, you know, strong speech, as Gunilla and Danny have said from Anthony Fauci, but um, there's been a four-year absence. And as Gunilla said, there wasn't too much mention of reform, which in another time, perhaps, the US might have been expected to be the kind of driver of with big UN agency. Is there room for the US back in a leading role in these big UN organizations? Or do you think too much maneuvering has gone on in the in the last four years? Well, I think, um, you know, we shouldn't expect the clock to go back to uh, how things were under Obama, because the ground has shifted so much uh, under Trump that, um, you know, Biden's got a new set of, uh, well, the chessboard has, has changed, you know, things are looking slightly differently. So he's not going to start um, from, from where he left off four years ago when he was vice president. But I think, first of all, he's hit the ground running with a lot of announcements uh, as soon as he was inaugurated. Um, I think that he's very much uh, pro-multilateralism, which means working with the, the UN and the WTO. The question is, can he do enough? I mean, I think this is a, a moment of truth for multilateralism, because there's so much to, that needs to be done. Um, if we think about, you know, the Paris Climate Accord, that needs to be done, but much more needs to be done. The WHO, yes, the, the US is, is recommitting, but... Um, the COVID pandemic has, has shown up some weaknesses in how it works. You know, then there are questions of nuclear weapons and cybersecurity and global economic problems and, you know, building back better. All these things are going to need to be dealt with. And, and I think Biden wants to do them in a multilateral way. But in order to do that, he's got to not just be willing to come to the table, but things have got to go his way. And, um, you know, we've seen over the last few years that, uh, the world is, is now largely populated, or not largely, but there are many sort of mini Trumps and populists and nationalists who may not be willing to play in this multilateral way. China seems to be pro-multilateralism, but of course, you know, how far can you push China before they push back? You know, on the WTO, just one last thought, the, w, the World Trade Organization has been so hamstrung that to make a difference there, I mean, it could be amazing, but so much that needs to be done, it's it, it would be... It's a big ask, um, even for the United States wanting to come back to the multilateral table. 
Danny, I'm going to ask you for a bit more on that, because as Gunilla said, and Tom has also said, Joe Biden has a huge amount on his plate. And despite the absence of the US in foreign policy for the last four years, we're still investing huge expectations in the United States. I mean, are those going to be fulfilled? Are we going to see a brand new team in Geneva, engagement at the Human Rights Council, engagement, as Tom said, at the World Trade Organization? Well, I think we're all hoping that there'll be a new American leadership, but I don't want to be negative. But I do remind you that Trump may be gone, but there still is the impeachment. And if Mrs. Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, gives the article of impeachment to the Senate, that becomes the priority, even a priority before Anthony Blinken is sworn in as Secretary of State. So I do think there are certain internal things in the United States that are going to take up a lot of oxygen, a lot of time, and a lot of energy. Uh, once the honeymoon is over, I think the pandemic and the certainly the unemployment is going to take a lot of Mr. Biden's energy. So I'm not sure that there'll be a lot of energy for multilateralism when the honeymoon starts to be over. So in Geneva, Danny, you're suggesting that we may have to be patient when it comes to U.S. re-engagement, despite the stated desire, clear from Dr. Anthony Fauci, for U.S. re-engagement, despite Joe Biden opting back in, for example, to the Paris uh, Accord on Climate Change. One thing that hasn't been mentioned by the new administration so far, big elephant in the room, kind of here in Geneva as well, China. And that is going to be our next question for discussion here on Inside Geneva, because China has dominated our discussions because the pandemic has dominated our discussions. And now, finally, after months and months and months of waiting, the World Health Organization has got its team into Wuhan. They're supposed to be assessing how this virus jumped species. They want to trace the origins of it, which they believe are probably animal. They're quite cautious, World Health Organization officials, about this mission and very keen to talk about this as a partnership and it's good to work with China and so on. Very different from what some of the WHO critics have to say about that. Let's just hear Dr. Mike Ryan, WHO's um, health crisis director. The global scientific community has to come together in a network at the request of the director general to deploy a team to work with Chinese counterparts to find the scientific answers we need so we can learn more about the origin of this virus. We do thank our colleagues in China for working with us to achieve this. It is a difficult task to fully establish the origins, and sometimes it can take two or three or four attempts to be able to do that in different settings. So uh, I wish the mission luck. So, Gunilla, this is the point where we think the WHO needs reform in the sense that it maybe needs a bit more oomph in a situation like this to say, we are the global public health body. We are going in actually last May when it was first agreed that this visit would take place. Yes, but at the same time, WHO, they need to have the, the Chinese have to be willing to let them in. And this has been the problem for a year. They're coming into China now one year after the outbreak was reported in Wuhan. This is very, very long. And it's not even sure whether they're going to be able to see 
they are now in the quarantine, they will start working, but then they're in the hands of the Chinese. Again, it all depends on where the Chinese wants to bring them, who they can meet, where they can investigate. If China has been very insisting on the virus is not coming from here, it is imported from somewhere in Europe or elsewhere. So if there was any signs or any evidence that it came from China, that's probably been washed away by now. So it is really an uphill work for this group. At the same time, it's good that they're there. They actually, even if it's one year late, what can they find realistically? Well, they have two theories. One was also that it came from a laboratory. So perhaps that theory can be uh, ruled out and they can somehow come up with, uh, it's going to take, this not going to happen in a week. It's not going to happen in months. Maybe it takes years. And then they're going to come up with the conclusion that it comes somehow from wild animals and markets. And as we know, humans just getting to the interaction between humans and nature is getting so intense. So these kind of viruses are jumping over to humans. And perhaps that can help in stopping or dealing with outbreaks in the future. So we're not going to have this kind of pandemic. We'll see. It, it For the time being, it doesn't sound very hopeful, but it's good that they are there. And we just hope it's not going to be a kind of whitewash of the Chinese version of events. Tom, Gunilla said, it could be a whitewash. The other side is there's still so much um, scepticism of China, you know, whether it's true or not that China covered up about this particular pandemic. We know that with the original SARS back in 2003, there was much less transparency, to put it diplomatically, than was required with a health uh, danger, health risk like that. Even if the WHO came back with 500 pages of absolute truth, there are going to be people that don't believe. There are. It's a conundrum. I mean, frankly, I, th I think this question about um, the investigation of, of the origins of COVID in China, it, it epitomizes the problem of multilateralism. The problem is that the world gets together and it sets up these international organizations and gives them a job. And then the international organization starts doing its job. And then it starts just doing its job a bit too well or intrusively or inconveniently. And then the people who are on the receiving end of that then start pushing back or saying, well, you know, we're not quite so sure we really want to be examined in, in this kind of way. And actually, we're paying for this. You know, why should we pay for this? So this is why I was speaking earlier about how if multilateralism is going to work, it really needs to jump this kind of, I mean, I, I, it's, it's a problem because there's a legitimacy problem. It, it, in a way, it needs to jump to a stage where the international organizations are able to it almost sort of think for themselves. But then you get into a problem where they're not democratic, they're not elected. Why should they be taking these decisions? And, you know, if I've got an elected government that's pushing back, then most people say that the nation state is still the way that we organize things. And, and most of the power, the representative power is, is through governments elected or not. So we've got a problem. It's possible the Chinese will, you know, welcome the outcome and reform things. But this won't solve the ongoing problem of multilateralism, the conundrum at the heart of it. Somehow, somebody cleverer than me has got to resolve that conflict and, and make these organizations more legitimate if they want to project their power in a way that challenges national sovereignty. It's a problem. That is, I mean, you're talking about national sovereignty and you said that um, countries tend to like these UN bodies that they set up until they become a bit too good at their jobs. Now, there speaks 
a man who has covered the United Nations like me for years and Gunilla, I can see you nodding too. Interestingly, we did see proposals coming from the independent panel looking at reform of the WHO, which said it's not just reform, i.e. we need to make it better, we need to make it stronger. Danny, I am going to come to you. I do think this is an interesting point. If we have the US re-engage and there are other big powers, are any of them really going to back making a UN body stronger? Well, I mean, one of the points that Tom made is, I think, terribly important about the role of China. If you look at multilateralism beginning after the Second World War, it was the United States and the Western powers who dominated And the question now is how to deal with China or eventually Russia or other non-Western countries in the multilateral system. We see Russia and China becoming back into the Human Rights Council where the United States is no longer involved. And I think it's the if the WHO, the World Health Organization, is extremely critical of China, then we could say that China will say, well, I'm not going to be a part of this or will withdraw in one sense or another. So that the question really is one of leadership. Who's leading the multilateral system if the Western countries are no longer economically dominant? And with China's economy, it really makes it a, a moving force in the world even in the multilateral system, but they're setting up, in a sense, their own parallel system economically. This brings me to another thing I wanted to discuss. It's not as big a gear change as it might sound, because we're talking about multilateralism and diplomacy and the kind of decisions and discussions that happen in Geneva. But of course, that wonderful big building, the Palais des Nations, had been pretty empty for months now. This is the scene in our memories of the Human Rights Council, hundreds of uh, ministers, diplomats coming from all over the world, as well as NGOs, or all those round after round of Syria peace talks still kind of taking place. But it used to be you could hardly move. You couldn't get a cup of coffee. The queue was so long. And now... It's yawningly, achingly empty, despite the fact that a billion dollars is being spent on, on, on renovating it. Gunilla, you've been in and out a few times in the last uh, few months. Do you think it's going to get back to all that hustle and bustle and, and really high diplomacy and multilateralism that we used to know? Perhaps not like before. I think it was already changing I mean, partly the UN, but and the journalism at the UN was already in, in a process of changing before the pandemic. And this has speeded it up. And we now know all of us, I mean, people at the UN and diplomats and, and bureaucrats and journalists, we know that we can get information, make our interviews, do everything we need by Zoom, Skype, Teams, Hangouts, you name it, all the platforms. And this has been a big uh, improvement in some ways. At the same time, what we miss is this kind of talk in the corridors and getting getting backgrounds, getting gossip, getting contacts. So I think, I think though that maybe it's not going to come back like before because we found other ways that we can actually get the information and interact. I think though that some things will come back 
like uh, peace negotiations or conferences where you have to have two parties or three warring parties actually meeting face to face to get they can't meet on zoom you know they have to meet face to face in a room or in two rooms with people running in between uh, i think that could come back because switzerland is after all you know a neutral uh, practical safe place to be I think for journalists, I think we're probably going to do more and more our work like we do it now via different platforms. And I think when the pandemic is over, perhaps business travel will not pick up as much. But I think journalists, we will be traveling to the field because we can't do our work only on Zoom, sitting at our desks. We need to be out there. So I think that will pick up. But at the Palais, I don't think we're going to see the same scenes as before. Unfortunately. Yeah, it's a bit sad, isn't it? Because as like you, I mean, I'm a journalist. I want to get back into the field because I know that for all we can do, all these stories, we're talking to each other virtually right now. Um, it's not quite the same. I don't get as good a story if I can't be face to face and interview someone and see the body language. So I'm wondering, like Tom, you covered the UN as well for years. I mean, what about the diplomats? Can you get as good a kind of diplomatic conversation, mind meeting, in this kind of, of virtual discussion? I, I think it will survive, um, not in the same form. To be honest, there were many uh, conferences I went to and I thought, good Lord, I can't believe that, you know, somebody is paying for all these people to come from all around the world to discuss, you know, probably discussing carbon footprints or something ironically. And I'd be sitting there shaking my head and thinking, I cannot believe, you know, and it, my job was to tell the world about this if I wanted to. And I'd say, well, there's no news value in this. So you've come all around the world to discuss the carbon footprint and nobody's going to hear it. Um, I mean, when it comes to the Syria talks, I remember the um, big conference we had with Kofi Annan in, in 2012, when um, all the sort of uh, heads of state and ministers and cast of thousands descended upon Geneva for this great jamboree, which in the end, rather tellingly fell apart um, amidst the sort of US-Russian misunderstanding about what was what had been agreed, I think. And over the years, we steadily saw that Syrian get-together dwindle into a very, very small niche and pretty much news-free sort of repetition of the same faces coming out saying, you know, we're working on this ever smaller sort of part of the text. And it was very depressing. I think Personally, I think that that was largely to do with the fact that, again, going back to this sort of multilateral system, we'd fallen into this world where people had given up to some extent on multilateralism. It wasn't working. There were bilateral forces at work. There were people pulling the strings to make sure that things didn't, that there weren't any more of these big events and, and big agreements. It was boiled down to become a smaller and smaller and smaller space that the UN was able to operate in. Having said that, I think that being able to brush past people, those random meetings that you have in the corridor with, you know, the North Korean ambassador or the Cuban defense uh, attache. Those are the kind of people you cannot bump into. And, and it might also be, you know, somebody you haven't seen for ages who's just come back from South Sudan who can tell you the, the truth about, you know, whether there's a famine going on. What's happening in Yemen? It's so difficult to get information about these places. But the UN in Geneva acts as a a sort of, well, a headquarters, literally, where people can get together and they can share information and share intelligence. It's a fantastic resource of people. And I think that the governments who pay the bills to have their diplomats there will probably, especially with the US coming back under Biden, they will see value in having people in 
in the building. It wouldn't be worth reinventing this place. It's better to keep it going. So, you know, we've seen some real doldrums over the years. There's no doubt about that. Um, and I've been in the Palais recently, and it was a, it was a ghost town because of, of COVID. But I do think that things will come back. Danny, do you go along with that? You're at such a, a long-term Geneva. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would, uh, I appreciate Tom's optimism. I make a small point about money. Uh, it does become expensive to send people to Geneva and to pay for certain things. And I look at the number of journalists at the Palais in Geneva who come from American uh, newspapers or American Associated Press. Uh, and when I was at the Palais years ago, there were many more Americans working at the Palais, and there are fewer now. And I think a lot of it just is simply a question of finance. It's expensive to send journalists, and it's expensive to send diplomats. And I think after the pandemic, there will be economic problems, and I just hope people will continue to send journalists as well as diplomats to Geneva. We're getting close to the end of the programme. I think that's quite funny what you said, though, there, Danny, is that maybe um, the kind of new future we're heading to will lead to a welcome, very welcome reduction in the price of Geneva hotels, which we, I think we would all, all, all be happy about. I wanted to finish this programme because we were looking at how we see the UN in Geneva and its future and whether it's been really shaken and to its foundations by the pandemic. We've had some optimism, but some acceptance that things are going to change. I'm reminded that just about, I guess, 10 months ago, when we were all kind of entering lockdown in shock, I had a podcast where I interviewed different people about what was actually going on. And one of them was an MSF doctor and also works at the Global Health Centre at Geneva's Graduate Institute, Vin Kim Gwen, and he said this. I have no idea. I, I To be honest, uh, this was one of the things I was thinking about. Uh, will I get sick? Will there be airlines in six months? Or will it all be back to normal? I think it'll be all pretty much back to a new normal. But I don't know what that new is. We've heard that phrase new normal um, a lot since then. And we're all kind of getting a little bit, hmm, we're not so happy, I think, with this endless restrictions on our movements. But do we have a better idea now? Vin said he didn't know what new normal looked like. But do we have a better idea now? Danny, I'm going to ask you first, what do you think our new normal personally looks like? And what do you think you might miss if we have to give some things up? Well, I mean, I, the, the new normal will never go back to the way it was before. The status quo ante can't come back. And I think the private sector will have more and more to do in the multilateral system, just like China. But I do think, and I agree with Tom, that face-to-face -face cannot be replaced. I think teleworking and other forms of Zoom and Skype have been helpful, but they're not the final solution. And human contact, to me, cannot be replaced. Tom? Oh, the, the mind boggles. There's so many things to think about. One, one thing that I think we can say is that school is kind of probably going to be different in future. My kids go to a school. We're so lucky. They, they really got the, the Zoom teaching habit pretty early. And the teachers there, I think, realized the potential to address a whole load of kids over Zoom at once. And so I think the way we learn 
has changed. I'm not suggesting we're going to be stuck in virtual classrooms forever, but I think that schools have learned a lot of tricks. And of course, the conference sector and, and getting people together, it, it doesn't make up for the loss of human contact, but it brings advantages and it can be really, can be much more efficient. So I, th I think there will be some good changes coming out of the pandemic. I also think that people will look at the carbon footprint. And, you know, a year ago, I think, I mean, I live close to Geneva Airport and it was beautiful, sunny blue skies. And I would look up and think, isn't it wonderful not to see planes in the sky in my uh, amateurish green way? Isn't that great? And won't that make a huge difference to, you know, when we get those statistics at the end of the year from the World Meteorological Organization telling us what the uh, what the current state of the carbon is in, in the atmosphere? And lo and behold, no, it didn't really make a difference. And that is a bit of a shocker because we've all stopped moving around and we're still churning out carbon. And so I think that has been a bit of a wake up call that we realize there's nowhere near enough going on. You know, when the leaders of the world get together later this year in, uh, in Glasgow for the Environmental COP Summit, I hope they'll take that on board. In a weird way, I think COVID has opened our eyes to just how much we're damaging our environment. And that is probably a topic for a whole podcast on its own and bring you back when we get closer to the Glasgow COP Summit. But for now, Gunilla? The new normal, I think, will be uh, that we will do more work on digital platforms. I do think so, because it has, in a way, made work as a journalist too more efficient. But I also think that, as Danny was saying, it doesn't really replace meeting people. And I think I will certainly be back in the Palais and I will be back traveling and I will be back in restaurants and I will be back speaking to my colleagues and and uh, diplomats and, and friends. And because that's where you get information you cannot get electronically or on platforms. I think perhaps we will be a bit more, at least in the beginning of the ending of the pandemic, be a bit more careful, maybe not shake hands, maybe not do the three kisses. In Sweden, we're used to hugging each other when you see someone. It's going to be hard not to do it because it's a reflex. But in the beginning, perhaps we're more careful. I think after a while, we will not carry around our little bottles with the sanitizers. I think we will put those aside. The pandemic will stay in the back of our minds. It all depends on how it develops with the mutations and variants and, and, and other outbreaks. I think we've learned a lot through this, how easily a virus can spread and what perhaps we must do if it comes out again, which is a good, something good to learn. I think we will definitely get together again and meet physically. I think there's a huge need when all this is over to consume, to meet, to, to have dinners, to party. I think people really need to get back to it. Like after the Spanish flu in the First World War, it was an explosion of social contacts and consumption. I think perhaps that's what we're going to see in the beginning after the pandemic. But uh, as Tom said too, we've, we've learned some things flying definitely there will be less flying. We don't need to fly as much for meetings and interaction. We'll think twice before we travel. Well, final word from me then. The thing that worries me a little bit about the new normal, it makes me a little bit sad to see here in Switzerland the things that everybody was so used to, the handshaking, and as you said, Gunilla, those three kisses when you greet a friend. It was a reflex 
but I don't think it is anymore. And sometimes I wonder if in the history books you'll say, oh yeah, that used to be a kind of social custom in that country, but it, it ended in 2020. And that makes me a little bit sad. And on a more personal note, like you guys, I want to go back into United Nations. I want to bump into the to a, a, a ranting ambassador in the in, coming out of the Human Rights Council with steam coming out of his or her nostrils because of a debate where they think their country's been insulted. I want to elbow Ganilla and Tom out of the way at a press conference. <laughs> Something we just can't do anymore, and I kind of miss it. You know, even though it was irritating at the time, I miss it. So, yeah, new normal, maybe we're getting towards the end of this. But as you say, I think some things have probably changed for good. And the way we travel and the way we work, I think, are going to be fundamentally changed. On that note, I just have to say thank you to Gunilla von Holm, Tom Miles and Daniel Warner. And to you all for listening to Inside Geneva. That's the end of this week's programme. A reminder, you've been listening to Inside Geneva from Swiss Info. You can hear more by going to our website, swissinfo.ch, including several episodes which have charted our path through the pandemic over the last year. We explore other key humanitarian challenges too, from the future of the United Nations to the war in Syria, to look at the history behind the Ottawa Convention Against Landmines. And of course... You can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Imogen Folks. Thank you again for listening. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.